together Through the rain and stormy weather I put things in order Before we can go on The Perth County Conspiracy is an extended family of about 50 people related to each other by their desire to live in community with nature and with one another. They live in different houses. Some are married, some are not. Some grow their own vegetables and all help to harvest them. Some live by small business enterprises, some by concert performances. They gather for work, sustenance, and sharing of pleasures stockaded on a hostile frontier as were their forefathers generations ago. This family is a spiritual conspiracy against an increasingly dehumanized society and music is its propaganda arm. As the 1960s turned into the 1970s, and as some of the bright Technicolor visions of the first summers of love started to fade, many of the denizens of those decades began to seek their utopias outside the cities of America and Europe. Communes and communities sprang up in rural areas, in these islands often in the wilder parts of Wales and Scotland. Burnt out beats, spiritual seekers, hopeful hippies, Farmers, fugitives, folkies, freaks, and other wild wanderers on the seas of fate sought to create new societies, living as much as possible by their own rules and values, or just taking lots of drugs, away from the watchful eye of the authorities. We've heard about a few of them on this show. Timothy Leary's acid mansion at Millbrook, where Vanessa Hollingshead had a very terrifying childhood. Allen Ginsberg's farm in upstate New York, where writer Barry Miles recuperated one long idyllic summer. Ken Kesey's farm at La Honda, where the merry pranksters gathered. The rural communes of Mexico and California, where Lisa Law or Peter Coyote lived in the 70s. Some were short-lived, some still exist. Others have sprung up since. Little islands of counterculture, defiantly flying the flag for a different way of living and loving. I'm Stephen Coates, this is the Viewer of Lost Culture, and I'm sat in the little island of counterculture called Soho Radio on Broadwick Street in London. And before we set off in search of paradises lost and found, why don't you join us at this island of counterculture, viewerofloscultures.com. Sign up for our bulletins. We've got some crazy stuff coming down the road you might like to know about. Leave us a review anywhere you can. Write to us with your ideas and thoughts. And thanks very much to Chris, Julia, Peter and Polly who wrote to me this month. Now my guest today is David Bramwell, who devoted an entire year of his life and emotion to set off in search of salvation, exploring some of the alternative communities where folk are still trying to build their utopias. He came across all sorts of wonderful, strange things and strange people along the way in an odyssey that took in a 1950s caravan on the northern shores of Scotland, a dominatrix community in the Czech Republic and a time machine hidden in a vast underground temple in Italy. All detailed in his book, 
the number nine buster utopia. I've got quite a lot in common with David. He's a musician, writer, broadcaster and event curator too. But annoyingly, he's much better looking than I am. Despite that, I've invited him to the Bureau of Us Culture. And here he is. David, welcome. Hello, Stephen. Nice to see you again. Yep, you too. I saw you in Brighton at your wonderful Catalyst Club. You went down very well with the audience. I enjoyed that a lot, actually. Well, Catalyst Club is just one of the things that you do, as I mentioned then. And we're going to talk today about alternative communities. And of course, you wrote this book, The Number Nine Bus to Utopia. Just tell us how it all began. It's a funny story, isn't it? It was a long-term relationship that fell apart. And um, I was dumped and replaced by someone my ex described as younger but more mature, called Dougal, uh, a name which partially softened a blow. And um, I realised I had a lot to learn back then about, about compromise, about living with others, about sharing, about being a good listener, about being a good partner, not being so selfish, and realising somewhere down the line on this journey, maybe at the end of the journey, maybe further on, that actually individualism and selfishness are inherent qualities within the way we live in the 20th and 21st century. We fought very hard for these, and uh, and yet we also pay the price in, in the way that we live in our communities or lack of communities in our towns and cities and in relationships as well, you know, that the attitude of I'll do it my way and, you know, that's the noble way, you just like to say, you know, and it's, it's kind of almost Ayn Rand, isn't it? It's, it's Ayn Rand with a bit of Crowley. You make it your own path. Mm. Let no one else tell you what to do. Um, and then you can, of course, veer into into selfishness if you're not careful. Do what they will, show be the whole of the law. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, We're going to come back to that, I think, because it's actually really important and it's part of the sort of human evolution, isn't it? Mm. I mean, we need a bit of that, right, as well. Yeah. Or as Adam Curtis said, the century of the self. Yeah. Which for a lot of people, unless, particularly if you weren't actually the aristocratic, was about time too, wasn't it, in a way? You know, to be able to stick your head up above the crowds and, well, absolutely. and actually shout out, this is me. Yeah, absolutely. It was an important um, revolution, but, but everything comes at a price. And so in my own small way, I was you know, kind of part of that, having been in a relationship where um, I think I, I held those those attitudes and uh, partly influenced probably by the countercultural mm. books that I'd read in my late late uh, teens and 20s. And, um, and so I had this realization that I needed to learn about about sharing and compromise and that also being a projects kind of guy I needed a project I needed also to escape the painful memories mm-hmm. of um, you know left alone in a house there's nothing worse than than that that emptiness and that loneliness and that pain that just is is all-consuming every um, time you pick a particular cup or something yeah yeah you turn yeah, well, on the radio and like the yeah, worst yeah. you know the cheesiest, <laughs> the cheesiest the cheesiest song then you're in tears you know um, <laughs> And uh, so I was, I was a part-time teacher at the time. Mm. I only, I've never, never held down a full-time job, which I'm very happy that, that those circumstances have kind of prevailed. But I was working a couple of days a week in a, in a school and I was given compassionate leave by a very understanding head. I'd been researching alternative communities for many years, been fascinated by different ways of living and hadn't ever considered, A, I'd be brave enough to, to like take a year out, drop everything and go and, go and visit these places go and consider whether or not I might actually live in one of these, just leave everything behind. Um, but uh, but the interest had been there. So I'd collected all the information, done the research, and then when the, I was hit with the relationship breakup, there was a real, an, an, you know, an attitude of, well, there's nothing to lose here. Nothing so, to lose and a lot to learn. Yeah, 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 mm. and have an adventure. So, mm. you know, I was in, my, it was in my late 30s. I could have had a tattoo. I, I'm still 
you know, one of the last remaining untattooed people in Brighton. I'm sort yeah, of holding wow. out to be um, a sort of a freak show museum exhibit, you know, when I'm when I'm in my 70s. Well, um, as soon as you die, someone's going to come up and tattoo you, aren't they? You're not allowed to be buried without a tattoo. <laughs> Brighton. <laughs> yeah, I, I decided I would I would go and have yeah. have this year. Mm. I, I cashed in some savings. We're going to dig into some of your adventures yeah. in detail. Um, it's a noble and brave countercultural endeavour, I, th- I think, to do that. And um took quite a bit of planning, I'm guessing, as well. It took a huge amount of planning. Right. Well, the, the first thing to, to, to say as well is that, in terms of courage, I'm a terrible traveller. I get quite anxious when I travel so the first thing I decided to do was not go anywhere that would actually challenge me so that's why I didn't go to India that's why I didn't go to you know some far-flung climbs I stuck to Europe and America also you go on these adventures and you think I could write a book about this Mm. and I thought well places like India probably would be cliched nowadays to include that why not look at how people have tried to to create their own utopias a bit closer to home in Scotland in Denmark in Germany in Italy in America etc I was genuinely more interested in those communities as well because the ones that I dug deep into with the research were you know ones where bloody hell this guy's building an entire city from scratch in the Arizona desert or this place have built an underground temple the size of St. Paul's Cathedral at night in secret in the mountain. Those, you know, there was a wow factor. The, the ones that you chose to go to have got, they've all got these extraordinary stories, maybe Findhorn less than the others, but, you know, they've got particular things apart from the fact that they're alternative communities. But in terms of the subject of alternative communities, or, in, or as they're called often these days, intentional mm. communities, mm. which kind of makes a bit more sense, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, they've always been them, right? They've always been monasteries and mm. nunneries, I don't know if that's the right word. You know, there's always been people who've chosen to go off and live together and mm. sort of by certain rules and stuff. But in terms of the counterculture with a big C, a lot of this stuff began in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, didn't it? I talked to Peter Coyote, for instance, and like yeah. he was, you know, set up the diggers. And it was a bit like, well, they had some of love and it started to crash. You know, it started to go darker. So they kind of retreated or fled in a way to yeah. these rural settings where they could c- control the environment outside the law to some extent mm. and sort of you know choose to live out these values so a lot, some of it had the roots there didn't it the stuff that you're talking about absolutely you know? it was it was this lovely old hippie i met in a in a hot tub in esalan <laughs> one of the one of the many places mm. um, and these hot springs are kind of perched on the mm. on the side of the cliff a very beautiful very very stunning beautiful, place very in big sur right big yeah, sur, in, yeah, big, yeah in big sur and uh, and yeah she she said to me that um she said two things that I thought were fascinating. One, one was, you know, we came to realize that we were never going to change the system. That mm. was not going to happen. So we fled, as you said. We, we moved, we found land, very different in America compared to here. They're able to find land, build, maybe build from scratch their own intentional communities and find, yeah, find a utopia. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to change, change America from the inside that way, maybe more from the outside. And many were successful. You know, the, the, the average life, span i think i read of a of a community is is, is four years it's hard work you know yeah. there's a lot of practical considerations which which are not considered i think in in setting these places up the second thing she said which which really stayed with me if there was one thing that the authorities and the government were most successful in in achieving in the 60s and that was to make hippie a dirty word hmm. I think of how many friends have, have talked about dirty hippies, bloody hmm. hippies, wouldn't, you know, anything but a bloody hippie. I remember reading Bobby Gillespie in, in a NME interview, you know, back in the 90s, boasting about how him and some friends had set fire to the house next door because it was full of dirty hippies. In fact, there's, an even, there's even a Kill All Hippies track, isn't there? Um, 
on one of their albums and how even to what we might consider the counterculture, you know, the idea of, of, of hippiedom, which in a way is way more radical than being in a rock band or whatever, but actually saying, I, I reject the values of this society. I will try and strike out on my own. It was radical, actually. And, uh, you know, you're just saying the States, maybe even more so in some ways, the land was there. But also, you know, there isn't the same sort of social security, which you can kind of build some of that those places on. But talking to Peter Cote, it was interesting because, he, you know, he was saying that some of them were like, were genuinely communes, as in built on a kind of communist basis. Mm. Others were charismatic Almost cult-like leaders, Ken Kesey, you know, the pranksters setting up on the farm, the hog farmers, Manson. Maybe partly was like turning its back on society, but also trying to change things from the outside, right? Mm. And the communities that you talk about, they're all people who are actually quite rad. Mm. And you saw with the 90s even, because I mean, a mate of mine went to live in Teepee Valley in West Wales. And he was there for three years and he just turned up with his tent, you know, in his car and, and, and and lived there for three years. And you think, what, can you still do that? Yeah, you know, in these times, it's amazing. Right? It is, and I, I all of the communities that I that I write about: mm. Christiania in mm. in Copenhagen, Damenhur mm. in 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 Italy, Vindhorn, which you know well. The, you know, they all have, in various degrees, had to be normalised mm. according to sort of according to how close they are to other other places, other people. Christiania is, is the one that suffered the most. So Christiania, for those who don't know, is, a, is an anarchist community set up in the late 60s in the, in the heart of, of Copenhagen to survive on, you know, three rules, which they say they still adhere to, which is no hard drugs, no violence, and, and don't... Have piss, lots of meetings. Have lots of... Don't piss people <laughs> off or have to have a meeting <laughs> about it. But, but when you look at mm. utopian literature, you will find, you know, say a, a book like Herland or Huxley's Island, there is either impenetrable parts of the jungle or an island, so somewhere that is away from the influence of the outside world so that the experiment can be conducted without mm. interference. You talk about in, when you go to Christiana, my experience there was was a bit, little bit a sort of shorthand version of yours because I was then thinking, well, this is, it's all right, but it's a little bit kind of scuzzy and it's yeah. a bit, you know. But just walking around and this woman came up to me and Alex I was with at the time and said, do you want to come to my house? You know, and just met her and she took us to, she had a house on the edge of the lake, quite idyllic. Okay, you know, we had a massive spliff, uh, and I, I, had, I knew I had to get to the airport, so I was feeling a bit anxious. But she's from Greenland, you know, which is a kind of protectorate of Denmark. What did she do? You know, she mm. exported cannabis to to Greenland. That was what she did. <laughs> it got a bit difficult because after after she'd smoked a couple of spliffs, she got very emotional right. and didn't want us to leave. So, it, right. which was a bit felt a bit rushed because when I just met. <laughs> well, I, anyway, yeah, when I, I appreciated the, it. Anyway. <laughs> the first day I arrived, I met. <laughs> Met this wonderful French woman, and uh, she just that she she lived mm. on a, on a house right on the on the edge, pretty much the mm. furthest you could walk to actually right. within within the community. And and she wanted to show me. She said, "I want to take you back and show you my my bare walls." Um, and I remember thinking, "Well, that doesn't mm. sound too exciting, but I've got nothing else planned." <laughs> uh, and she takes me in, and she says, uh, "Look, this is my, this is my bare wall, and there's scratch marks on the wall." And she proceeds to tell me that a bear used to live in the house. <laughs> In the in the oh, early seventies, yeah. and I can't remember the bear's name, but then she digs out mm. some vinyl with mm. um, the bear. We used to perform with with a, a singer songwriter, um, and obviously we wouldn't endorse this kind of mm. uh, treatment of animals now. The bear got a drink problem living there, <laughs> and she she tells the story about how they realised the bear's drinking was too much of became too much of a problem. They tried to mm. offer the bear to the zoo, 
the local zoo didn't want it because it was it was too drunk and unpredictable. And she said, oh, I remember somebody said they had a flat in Copenhagen they could take it to. I remember us bundling the bear into a taxi and we kissed it goodbye and that was it. And you go, I want to know what happened next. It's like um, Christian the lion, you know, those two gay guys who adopted the, that lion they bought in yes, Harrods. Yes, yeah. those experiences where you, where you feel welcomed are, are fantastic. But also there's something important for me there because I wouldn't want to live that way. You know, I'm a bit OCD. You know, there's certain things about living that, that way that I'd find very difficult. But I'm very glad that people are doing it still mm. and a bit like i said about the tp valley thing it's like i'm really glad that even in this age that people still can do it you know because it seems just very valuable to present that as an alternative and you know you did this kind of survey your own personal survey of these places i mean let's talk about findhorn because i mean obviously i know a little bit about it. what drew you to findhorn and what is findhorn I had to visit the UK's largest intentional community, spiritual community, which at the time was there was about 500 people living there full time. I'm guessing it's around that now. And and over the years, it's it's had its its celebrities. So Phil Kay, mm. the comedian, Mike Scott from the Water Boys was the archivist. Ruby Wax has a place up there, which that was set up in it was 1962, wasn't it? When it was 62, yeah. Three friends or, or a couple and a friend. Um, Manage the Trois, I think is probably the correct Was it? Oh, yes. Was it? Yes, yes. Oh, I didn't Manage, know that it yeah, was. Yeah. Okay. I hadn't wanted to make that presumption, mm. but uh, they were theosophists, weren't they? And mm. and, uh, and and I, so Peter and Eileen Caddy and mm. Dorothy McLean and uh, and Eileen uh, claimed to have direct communion with God, and it was God who 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 said, build a magic garden, they will come, when the three of them were were left stranded in Findhorn Caravan Park, when they'd all lost their jobs, jobs working in a, in a local hotel. And I love the fact that... I mean, I think I say this in the book that if, if the Carry On team had written uh, written Carry On Up the Commune, it couldn't have been a better plot than than <laughs> than this woman chatting with God who can't hear God anymore because they're now in a caravan and it's too noisy. They've got three boys. There's aeroplanes flying all, uh, overhead from the noisy RAF base. The rain and the wind battering this tiny caravan. She can't hear what God's saying. Says to God, "Give me guidance. Where can I hear what you're?" You know, and God says, "Go to the caravan site toilets between the hours of four and six in the morning." You know, and so she does, and it's winter time, so it can't have been pleasant and eventually she can hear what God's saying build the magic garden so they they build this garden and then there's an abundance of fruit and veg mm. that that summer and there's talk of carrots the size of a of a of a Labrador's leg and and tomatoes the size of a schoolboy's head and the and the counterculture starts to the hippies start to show up and then by the mid 70s they've got enough money to buy the caravan park they were mm. stranded in and um and lots of other property and lots of other properties and an island and i think those stories i think are amazing three people going oh shit we're stuck in a caravan what are we going to do um well let's at least at least grow some some fruit and veg and then 10 years later mm. they're they're running a, a flourishing community well here's a clip from a program made in 1973 about Findhorn in the community hall where the founders were asked to explain their vision by a presenter called Magnus Magnusson. Well today the Findhorn Foundation is a busy and well organised and growing community of some 140 people from many parts of the world and not just Britain based on harmony and love. But its beginnings were unlikely to say the least. It started ten years ago, with three people who were, not to put too fine a point upon it, destitute. Peter Caddy and his wife Eileen and their friend Dorothy McLean. Well, they settled on a rubbish dump in a corner of the caravan site here at Findhorn, guided, they believe, by inner promptings. And one of the first directions they received was to turn the rubbish dump into a garden, to make the desert bloom. The Caddies had never planted a seed in their lives, 
but they were now getting guidance directly from another spiritual source, the devas or angelic beings who control the elemental nature spirits of the plant world. These elementals, fairies, elves and gnomes, in return poured fecundity into the garden and the flowers and vegetables throve mightily. of things which are important as well in their story which is that they were kind of sort of christian but also quite posh you know i mean they weren't beats they mm. weren't hippies they were obviously yeah but there is a sort of part of their history which has been sort of erased which is that they were also a kind of ufo cult and the reason that they were actually sacked from the the hotel, which they later bought, I've stayed there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> brilliant. Was that they they you know they had this idea that there's going to be a landing on the mound at the back. Yeah, um, and that's why the management sacked them, and that's why they moved to the caravan park. And and um, apparently in the early years, they they were regularly going to the shore, you know, where, where we are, with the expectation that extraterrestrials were going to land. There's in the film My Dinner with Andre. They have a conversation mm-hmm. about Findhorn. It kind of crops up, doesn't it? And this talk about the roof of the Universal Theatre, mm-hmm. being Universal able Hall, to yeah. be detached in case an alien spaceship wanted to land and hide. Is that true or not? Do you know? I'm reluctant to say, no, it isn't true, because that part of their story is important, and yet I think they're a bit shy about it now. Mm. We can laugh at it and stuff, although, of course, you know, let's face it, the whole UFO thing is back with a vengeance, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Right, it is. Back in fashion. But I think that there's something I wanted to talk to you about, which I thought was an important theme in this, and maybe in the wider discussion, which is they had this idea, and I think it was a sincere belief at the time, this is late 50s, early 60s, that, you know, extraterrestrials, you know, were going to come and save humanity in some way, mm-hmm. you know, and that what we needed to do was to welcome them, right? Okay, later this kind of metamorphosizes into this belief that there are devas, these local nature spirits, and the gardens that you talk about, these giant vegetables, the idea was that it was grown with the assistance. Through you know, Dorothy, through, wasn't it? Dorothy yeah, communicated With the yeah. local nature spirits, right? Now, yeah. again, you think, well, that's a bit batty. Well, the latest uh, sort of incarnation or iteration of this is the angel of Findhorn, right? Mm-hmm. Which is this kind of guiding spirit. I just saw this as a metaphor, you know, that they have this metaphor of like other power, which in the context of the Cold War and 50s, maybe is about UFOs. In the 60s, it became about nature spirits. And more recently, it's this thing like this genus loci or something like that. It's the evolution of some sense of other. Now, if you've imbibed psychedelics, you've got a sense that there is another of some sort, right? So in a way, even though it is a bit batty and it sounds a bit sort of silly, I think it's an important part of the motivation which has managed to keep a community like Findhorn going for 60 odd years and it's still going that's a really good point because i i'll be honest i didn't really pick up on that when i was Mm. when i was doing my research i picked up on all the stuff about you know kind of elves and pixies and Mm. davis and all the rest and and this idea of nature spirits in fact they had was it robert ogilvy crombie i can't quite remember his name rock 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 roc you know and then he was he was someone who'd come from edinburgh hadn't he and and he claimed to commune Directly with uh, with Pan, he met Pan in the, yeah. in the Botanical Gardens in Edinburgh. Right. Yeah, there were quite a number of people walking about the gardens. I looked at them and I looked back, and the little figure was still there. And then it suddenly occurred to me, what am I doing? I'm trying to rationalise it. I'm trying to explain it away because I have rather an analytical type of mind. 
And I suddenly thought, this is ridiculous. Here is a very extraordinary and wonderful experience. Why don't I just accept it? I can do the analysis later. So I just sat back and watched this little figure. Well, he danced across to another tree, a little to the right, and went round it, went round a third tree, came dancing over, looked up at me, and then he suddenly sat cross-legged in front of me. I thought that he was looking at me with a sort of rather quizzical, humorous look. Anyway, he was so distinct, so clear to me, that I leant forward and I said, hello. Well, he leapt to his feet, looking absolutely startled. Can you see me? Yes. I don't believe it. Humans can't see us. Well, it seems as if some of us could. What am I like? he asked. So I described him. And then he did a little dance round, dancing little circles, and he said, what am I doing? So I told him. Still looking puzzled, he came dancing over and sat beside me. And that was my first experience of a contact with what I'd call a nature being. Well, can I move on? I've yes. also heard that you have met and spoken to the great god Pan, whom one thinks of as being a mythological figure. Yes, this is true. And it seems to me that this meeting with the little fawn, which puzzled me at the time because I hadn't been reading Greek mythology, was leading up to this other meeting. This took place about six weeks later, at the end, about the end of April. I had been visiting friends on the south side of the city, and I was walking home. It was about half past 11 at night, and a very lovely evening. I came down the street called The Mound, which uh, links the High Street in Edinburgh to the middle of Princess Street. And as I turned the last corner into the straight bit that goes down the side of the National Gallery, I seem to walk into a very curious atmosphere. It's rather difficult to explain it in words, but I could feel it against my body, a sense of warmth and a sense of a sort of tingling feeling. And again, I had a repetition of this feeling of expectation. And then I realized I was not alone. There was a figure walking beside me. This time, again, it was a fawn, but this time it was taller than I was. And I thought, well, goodness, this is not my little fawn grown up, surely. Because I had a tremendous feeling of power coming from this figure, and I felt in great awe. There was no sort of communication for a bit until we got to the space between the two galleries, when he suddenly turned to me and he said, Well, aren't you afraid of me? No. I said, Why should I be? I don't sense any evil from you. Why should I be afraid of you? He said, all human beings are afraid of me. I said, well, I'm not. He said, do you know who I am? I did at that particular moment. I said, oh, yes, you're the great god Pan. Have you, have you seen him often since then? Oh, yes. Uh, very when often. was the last time you the saw him? The last time I saw him was this afternoon, actually. This <coughs> afternoon here at Fintorn? This afternoon here at Fintorn. He was not, he didn't appear quite so solid as when I, I've seen him in previous times, but his presence was very much there and very strong. Is his presence here Oh, now? he is. He is here now because he's very interested in this program to which he's given his blessing. Can you see him? I can't see him, but I feel him. I'm aware of him. He's somewhere at the back, actually.
you go to Fintorn talk when I was there was all about ecology and about mm. the environment mm. and so it's just it is yeah the, the, the metaphor shift they work and they're powerful then why not um, mm. it's too easy and small-minded to just belittle these things we think we're better you make a point in when you talk about Damanhu which is this you know this extraordinary place in Italy you know these people have done this incredible thing you know what's the purpose of this and you talk about well we need new myths to live by the Damanhur experience in a way is something about creating some myth that just seems to be the, the same thing is that you can call it metaphor you can call it myth but the the communities that have actually been able to survive and thrive yeah. they've had a myth to live by and that's what's enabled them to keep going through changing times long way they continue to do so i'm very glad that they're doing it and that people are still being mythic. We haven't got time to talk about, let's say, the free love communities. Actually, I've come to realise that they're the least interesting places to talk about and they were the least interesting places to visit because the mythology was very was very shabby, really. It was, you know, in one of the particularly, one of the places, just like, hey, why don't we all shag each other? Mm. Yeah, and... Well, we haven't got an and. We mm. just like, you know, those are the ones that, that tended to collapse the quickest because mm. just driven by a handful of people's libidos and, and, you know, sometimes some quite toxic individuals. It's not always, I'm not saying that polyamory and other forms of um, sexual expression, you know, are not valid, but, um, but in those particular communities, they didn't have... Uh, a solid mythology and the ones the, you know the powerful ones like Findhorn mm. particularly like Damanhur Damanhur you know intentionally sat down and wrote incredible complex mythology that involves the destruction of Earth it involves Atlantis it involves UFOs it involves time travel brilliant stuff you know brilliant brilliant stuff and they know what the fuck they're doing you know they wanted to to sell their story to Hollywood through the theatre maker Ken Campbell who became obsessed with the place give us a quick sort of description of Damanhur I mean it is extraordinary put yourself into 1978 and you're and you're on in the foothills of the Alps just about 45 minutes drive from Turin and and a group calling themselves Damanhur read by a charismatic leader let's you know let's be honest about this um, called Falco born Berto Raudi um, who would have been 28 at the time, and there's 28 of them there, he, it, he says to them, we're going to build something the like of which the Earth has not seen for thousands of years. We're going to build this extraordinary structure, and we're going to do it at secret, and we're going to do it in, at night, and we're going to do it by hand for the first few months so that nobody can hear what we're doing. Sounds like a kind of very cosmic 70s version of The Great Escape. <laughs> well, you know, I've met so many brilliant people from Damanhur um, and learnt a lot of the mysteries, but the one thing they won't tell you is, what the hell did they do with all, all of the that soil? <laughs> soil and rock? And the only thing I can think is, is like, there's another mountain out there that, you know, that someone's got their map going, that's not on my map. That wasn't there before. Yeah, yeah. Over a period of 23 years, up until the point of, of them being raided by the authorities, you know, they, they worked on this on this underground temple called the Temples of Human. Without anybody realising? Without anybody knowing, until there was an attempted blackmail by, by a former member of the group. And they said, no, do you know what, we'll, we'll come clean. And it partly culminated in a, in a raid, something bigger than the Mafia had ever experienced. Biggest raid in Italian history. 250 members of the armed forces with machine guns, sniffer dogs, helicopters, you name it, to try and just discredit this community because the Vatican wanted them out, the authorities in Turin wanted them out, belief that they were this kind of weird dark cult. There'd been the Solar Templars who committed suicide, mass suicide in in Switzerland nearby, you know, in the late 80s, I think that was. So, you know, you could see what associations were being made. And, and the Damanhurians like to say, after that raid, they didn't even find a cigarette. Hmm. You know, they couldn't. Because uh, they are a squeaky clean community, hmm. to the, you know, to the best of my knowledge. And, uh, and they had to reveal 
the temples of humankind. And the mayor of Turin, Turin who was their arch nemesis, became their greatest supporter. He, he after went, visiting, after visiting, mm. he. I mean, this is how they tell the story, mm. of course. And they are myth makers. He came out after his three-hour visit in tears, as I did. I came out in tears the first time I saw it, and he said, "I will do everything in my power to enable you to keep this. This, this is extraordinary. The most extraordinary." Part of, of the whole Dam and Her story is the very fact that it never became international news. Mm. I mean, it's it's baffling. It should have been one of the great news stories of the 20th century. It just shows us that we don't like good news because the wow factor, you know, of this structure, you know, think St. Paul's Cathedral, built by people who didn't know what they were doing. Nine temples. Nine temples. A, a labyrinth. labyrinth. Yeah. A um, time machine. A time machine. Which um, it's incredibly ornate and beautiful surfaces, isn't it? Well, yeah, a lot yeah. of marble in there. Very colourful. To judge it for its artistic merits, you know, one could easily be sniffy in terms of it, it looks a bit new age, but to show what we can do. See, the thing is, is that what I thought was fascinating reading about it sort of connected for me with, about, say, great prehistoric monuments of these islands, mm. all the different theories about Stonehenge, etc. Well, when I was actually reading your adventures there, I thought, well, maybe that's why they built Stonehenge, to show that we can do it. This mm. kind of collective, communal... Endeavor, which is an aesthetic thing driven yeah. by a myth, a huge amount of effort over a great period of time. But that's the reason, that's enough reason somehow to show that we can do this. And it kind of binds this community together, doesn't it? The fact that they've been involved in this endeavor, they're, yeah. still, they're still at it, right? Abs- absolutely. They're still, you know, the, the temple continues to grow. And if you know, if you want to, if you want to, I know we're going to move on to talk about this, mm. or I think we are. If you want to pinpoint thing, one example, if someone says, what's the point of a community, you know, like, you know, better to live in a city, you go, yeah, well, maybe, but what did we achieve when we decided to mark the passing of a millennium? We built the Millennium Dome. I mean, really, are we proud of that? Is that the best we could do to mark the passing of a thousand years? And yet a couple of countries (laughs) over to the east, a bunch of people with no skills in knowing how the hell to build something underground to deal with subsidence, to deal with waterlogging, to deal with temperature, to deal with lighting. And they build nine temple spaces. They build the world's largest stained glass Tiffany cupola. Wow, that's what you can do with that group mind, with mm. that intention. with And as you say, with with the myth behind it. I mean, the myth behind the Millennium Dome really is, is capitalist myth, isn't it? I mean, that's what it became. It's a, I'm not knocking it as a venue. I didn't look at it and go, oh, wow, you know, it's like it's one of the great cathedrals. Communities demonstrate what we can achieve. And, you know, these people gave up their, their night's sleep. And they would say, you know, the ones I spoke to, like working in Turin. So a 45-minute drive after a day's work. Like, say you're working in the hospital, and then you drive to Damanhur, and then you work through the night, and then you go back to work, and then you come back and you work through the night. One of the Mm. things that I hadn't considered when visiting all of these communities was architecture. Mm. It was the buildings, the creativity, Mm. the originality, and the intention that went into the structures that people built, particularly in Christiania, because if you think... Well, there were a bunch of stoners, you know, like in the late 60s, a bunch of stoners had lost their squats that had been bulldozed by the, the authorities. So they go looking for somewhere else. They find this disused area, 84 acres of, of old army barracks north of the river. And they go, hey, let's, let's, let's squat here. And you think, well, what's it going to be? It's going to be a shanty town. It's just going to be, you know, kind of drug heaven. No one's going to worry about sanitation. Far from it. They learnt how mm. to build their own mm. homes. Well, Christiana's full of, full of these idiosyncratic things, as is Findon, by the way. As is Damanhur, yeah. as was Harbour and Hot Springs, one of the places I went to do, sadly, sadly burnt down. 
uh, a few years ago, Esalen, some of the mm. co-housing communities I went to in San Francisco and Oakland. You know, if you allow people to, to create the kind of communities and homes that they want, then actually we, we get to demonstrate our ingenuity and our singular visions. And, and it's not going to be horrible and tasteless and clashing. That's the stuff that is, is largely planned by committee, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it probably does need some kind of like communal myth or com- communal mission or something to sort of make it work. Ecology, of course, in Findhorn, you know, is guide the guiding principle behind a lot of the buildings that have been built there. But they are beautiful, you know, yeah. the whiskey barrel houses. I can't think of any of the places that I went to that wasn't driven by ecology. Arcasanti, which is the uh, the city that Paolo Soleri started building in, in 1970 in marginal land just outside of Phoenix. Uh, he coined the word arcology, which is right. architecture and ecology. Mm. And um, and that was, yeah, the driving force. I mean, hard to imagine a, a community that wouldn't have a consideration for uh, for ecology, unless maybe it was an urban one. I visited one in San Francisco, which was uh, united by polyamory and the love of Joan Jett and the blackguards. Um, this woman living in this house called the Pencil House where they were, they're all living. I can't remember her name now. And I said, and how long did that last? Uh, and she said, oh, about six months. Yeah, we all we all shagged each other and listened to Joan Jett and, uh, and then we sort of drifted away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a lot of those, a lot of those kind of Countercultural years, you know, they were they were brief, but at the same time could be quite transformatory. I did an interview with Miles, you know, about his time on Allen Ginsberg's farm. Ginsberg had his farm for a, I think only maybe three years actually. Ginsberg was an extraordinary character because he was amazingly generous and sort of resisted becoming a kind of cult leader. But you know, his farm was basically for his friends and for kind of you know he was concerned about various of the of the beat generation who were turning into drug addicts and mm. alcoholics, and you know, so it became a bit of a refuge as well. And the way that Miles describes it, you know, one summer on the farm, you know, it was a place that you could go to and get healed, maybe get transformed or recharged even to sort of re-enter the fray, you know, the urban fray. As we were talking before, I just found out this morning that there's a community in Peckham in mm. South London. I was, it's obviously extraordinary to read about that. There is that strange place down in, I think outside Dorchester that Prince Charles, King Charles as he's now, um, it's kind of classical ghost town, that's how I describe yeah, it's it. it's rather soulless. You can't, you know, you it has to grow from the inside out, exactly. doesn't it? Not from the outside yeah. in. Yeah. It'd be too easy to be overly critical, I think. There, there was probably, mm. you know, there's good intention mm. behind something like that, but, mm. but that's not how it works, is it? No, he was fighting the suburban sprawl which blights most British towns on the edge of them, yeah. you know, which is developer-led, right? Like, I think he was trying to do an alternative to that, but he was quite well-intentioned. He always used to get lambasted as well, didn't he, for, for talking to plants, I seem to remember. Maybe he'd spent some time at Findhorn. One of the positive things, I think, about uh, some of the alternative communities, at least, is that they did cross the class barrier. Um, you know, you could be the posh or a, a dirty hippie, as you said earlier. Uh, and I thought we'd have one last excerpt from these interviews with the Findhorn Foundation back in the early 70s, when you can hear a bit of both. And also, I love the kind of naive in some ways, but wonderful optimism about changing the world and changing society. We have to learn to see it in, in greater terms and just ourselves. We've got to see it in terms of a whole a wholeness, a growing, just a oneness. I am one with the lettuce I eat, especially after I've eaten it. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps it is one with you would be more (laughs) accurately anatomical way of putting it. I am one with you, I am one with my greenhouse, I am one with all my plants, and 
Anything done with love cannot be without uh, good merits. This is how we feel. I would like to bring it in at this point. Um, Sir George Trevelyan, who has been an adult educationist all his life, concentrating very much in the higher spirit worlds of the, the new age kind of thinking. What do you think are the really serious implications of the Fintorn experiment, as we call it? First, the great hope. I'm more and more convinced that there is a spiritual awakening which is going on in our time. A great many people are questing for a different outlook, a non-materialistic outlook, a spiritual picture of life. And the realization that there is a great realm of creative intelligence, a great unity of life behind the outer appearance, uh, brings a supreme hope into people's lives. It means there isn't any death, because the inner core of us is an eternal being belonging to this world. And the great hope now is that the veils, can you say, are becoming thin between the different levels of consciousness. It's becoming possible for people, as never before, to contact the thinking of beings in the higher worlds, but that everybody is able to come nearer to these worlds. Finthorn seems to be a wonderful demonstration of the possibility of man working with higher levels of intelligence. And it looks to me as if we can transform society, can indeed redeem mankind and nature, if we can learn to live not only out of our self-sufficiency, but co blending in our thinking, cooperating in our creative thinking with higher worlds. But does man, do mankind and nature need reforming? Isn't it all, all rather alarmist, this talk we keep hearing about, you know, the, the world is coming to an end because we're destroying it? Is it really coming to an end? Everybody is to some degree alarmed. It is an anxious-making world. There's a sporting chance that man may destroy this world, quite obviously. And if he goes ahead on his own self-sufficiency, it's highly likely. But the change of thinking that comes when people begin to blend consciously in their thinking brings the hope of a whole new society forming. We talk of a new age coming, which brings you with it a joy and a hope of a new possibility. David, you went on this epic, personal, uh, countercultural odyssey. What did you learn? What were the... What were the conclusions that you came to on a personal level as well as on a sort of societal level? I was about to say that we all need community. Mm. Maybe we don't all need community. Some, some people need their privacy and they need their peace and quiet. But we do know that we live in an age where there's an epidemic with suicide, um, with depression, with anxiety, with loneliness. And they're particularly bad in, in cities. It's easier to, be, to feel isolated, to feel detached and disconnected and communities offer that opportunity to have a sense of meaning a sense of place a sense of purpose and a strong sense of connection and we all know what the downsides of that can be as well you, you can find yourself living with a relatively small number of people and you really don't get on with some of them or maybe worse still they don't get on with you and you have to you really have to, you come face to face with your own skeletons mm. i i mm. did um and i also i learned a lot through through the people around me in the different communities, particularly the one, particularly one person who I loved to bits, 
but was, you know, he was a selfish son of a bitch um, with some addiction problems, you know, and a big ego, but also a massive heart. This was someone mm. I met in, in, in Damanhur. I saw reflected back at me some of the behavior that I'd been been guilty of, that we all can be, be guilty of. Those opportunities can be utterly avoided now. You can work at home, you can get everything delivered to your house, you can just hang out with the people that you like who will reinforce your points of view. Mm. Um, those opportunities are necessary for us to grow and, and transform. I didn't have any ideas at all, I'll be honest, about, about how I might uh, change my relationship with community in, in Brighton. When I returned, I returned to an empty house and, uh, and a heart that was healed. And, and having been greatly inspired by the people and the places I've been to. It was an expat called David Burke, and often it just it takes the outsider, doesn't it, to, to kind of show us what we need sometimes. And he'd set up this event in Brighton called Zocalo. He was, you know, I think along the same lines. We're all just on our devices. We're all staring at screens, and, and community is, is sort of crumbling, and, and yet so many people are craving it. He came up with this idea of, of an event, very low-key, did a poster campaign, knocking on a few doors, a bit of social media, just say to people, hey, if you want to just hang out on the street next week, um, just put a chair there. Some of us might gather on that street and that street, and, and it grew and grew and grew. And hmm. when I returned, I wanted to do something. So, so we started running these events together and growing Zocalo across a community of 2,000 houses. It didn't require a lot of work. You know, a lot of the hard work is done through Group Mind, through social media, etc. A local directory put the poster as a double-page pull-out so people could stick it in the windows and say, I'll be taking part in Zocalo. And it's so simple. We've both been trying to spread the word for years and just planting the seeds and saying to people, you don't need to follow the idea. You don't exactly. You don't need to take mm. the name. You don't need to communicate with us. You don't need to do it on the same day. Just if you like the idea of doing it for your street or for your neighborhood. They seem like little things. A little neighborhood gathering, an informal party, whatever, the connection is made. And then you can make a difference. So it's not necessarily that you've got to go off and live in a commune, that you've got to go and live in a Findhorn or an Esselin, you know, or that you've got to go to Christiana or Damanhor, you know. Alan Moore said to me, he was talking about the arts labs in the sort of late 60s and 70s, and I said to him, well, what is counterculture? What do you think counterculture is? And he said, counterculture is people getting together and having ideas together mm. and doing those ideas together there's some power in that absolutely you know. i feel optimistic that, that will carry on it's become very difficult in a place like london i'm not sure about brighton but you know i mean even when i came to london there was a quite a lot of people squatting bonington square near where i used to live you know there was a whole community around there community cafe it was all squats and you know now then it became a housing association and that's all f better for the people who live there i understand that of course mm. but changes of laws it's impossible to squat now isn't it so yeah. it, and actually the buildings that are being built in this city this vertical stacks of small units it's a yeah. bit more difficult to and, and to have a street uh, life absolutely and that's well in all of the co-housing places that i went to in mm. in the u.s and um and places like arcasanti which was the city that they had been built in arizona that i mentioned in those places there were communal kitchens, there were communal spaces. And I mean, what I really liked about, say, some, say the one of the co-housing groups that I went to, uh, it was either Berkeley or, or Oakland, where everyone just pooled their money. Mm. Said, right, there's, a, there's an old abandoned warehouse over there, we're gonna pool our money. We'll all have our own individual homes, flats basically, but we will decide as a collective what we would like to be, what we'd like to have as the, as the communal spaces. So, you know, it could be a cinema room, it could be a gym, it will definitely be a kitchen, will definitely, you know, that, that's, a, that's a must. Um, we could have a pool, could we afford a pool? I mean, could you imagine the, having that opportunity to come together with people and make those decisions? What would you most like? You know, the kitchen's the hub of it. Firstly, because it's food, because it's communal, because it's breaking, you know, bread together. 
but also you're a single person with it with a kid and and time is at a premium all the things that you've got to do and you haven't got anybody else to help you well if you can have your meal cooked for you 20 days of the month and somebody and, can keep an eye on your and that can be shared and and yeah you've got to do your bit so you've got to cook that communal meal one mm-hmm. day but you don't have to cook every day the you know the things that we can do to to help each other are Myriads and societal forces work against us, as you say, in terms of how we building. And in Scandinavia and places like Germany, there's 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 greater percentage of social housing, much more consideration. You know, even things just like like um, having washing machines in basements. Like, mm-hmm. why does everyone need a washing machine? Why not have the best washing machines ever ever known? <laughs> you know, in the basement, and there's just a, there's just a system mm-hmm. for for using them. Much better. It's interesting, isn't it, that in all the debate, which is you know very current about mortgages and rents and cost of living and housing and stuff is that there isn't really a debate about community i mean in this sense an intentional but debate about community mm. um david it was an odyssey so so you got healed as they say came back and you <laughs> put it into action and i was just thinking that you know that's the way i can kind of relate to these intentional alternative communities is that i personally wouldn't want to go and live in one like you know infinitely but i can sort of see the value of they're almost like think tanks or something. Mm. You know what I mean? You can actually go to them and then... Damonher calls itself a laboratory for the future. Right. So um, you can go there. You could learn stuff. You could mm. like, experience stuff. Some of it difficult, rubbing up against people in the wrong yeah. way, etc. You're going to come up against yourself, right? Aren't you? you can't get away from yourself. Uh, and then you can maybe come back into the mm. world. And you'll be a, you'll be a richer person. Uh, richer absolutely. Person. I'd like to think that I'm someone who can get on pretty easily with other people, and I enjoy getting on with you. And I love meeting new people. You know, heartbroken. I'm have a project I'm going to hate. But what I discovered fairly quickly was that I, I, I enjoyed the experiences. I liked the sharing. I lived in communal places. Each place I stayed in for a minimum of a month, and by and large, lived with other people, lived with strangers. What I missed was diversity. What I missed was the heartbeat of the city. What I missed was gigs and films and theatre. You know, the mashup of, of people and, and ideas and cultures that we get mm. in, our, in our towns and cities. And that was why the, one of the last places I went mm. to, Arcasanti, was I got excited at the idea of, well, wow, what if we actually build our cities from scratch and think about community and, and ecology, mm. etc.? I mean, they'd only managed to build 7% of the city and it mm. ran out of ma- money. So all of these places are, have their battles equally. It wasn't, for me, there wasn't anywhere that I went to and thought, I will stay here. I will place my hat here and, and, and that's it, we're done. But equally, when I returned to Brighton after the end of the year, if I remember rightly, Paolo Coelho's The Alchemist is about somebody buggering off on a journey and then coming back and finding that the thing he was looking for was under his bed or under his sofa or something. But I remember coming back thinking, if I'm going to write about this, oh, am I going to finish with the, the final chapter being, no, oh, it was Brighton all along because it's <laughs> bohemian and it's trendy and it's like, and actually, no, it wasn't. I came back to Brighton and I mm. saw how polluted, how overcrowded, how expensive the city was and how a lot of people were experiencing a sense of isolation, a sense of poverty in, in many in, in its many forms, poverty. I, I see Brighton for what it is. I love my hometown, but um, I didn't see it as, as a utopia at all and um, and saw that the, the way that we've constructed mm-hmm. our places, the selfishness that we all indulge in um, is very, very present. This has become standard practice now, but when I return from my journey, I was shocked to see in the post office and on buses and, um, and and other, you know, kind of regular places, those signs that said, you know, if you abuse our staff, then the following. It's like, what? do we have to do that now? Do we have to remind people 
to be polite to someone that they're picking up a package from or, or handing a package to. Bloody hell. I, I get it sort of quite regularly because Findle, whenever you walk past somebody, particularly in the Findle Foundation, you know, you always say hello or good yeah. morning or whatever. So if you do that in London, people are like, back off. Mm, you know, if yeah. I walk in the street in Borough and say hi to somebody. It get very tiring as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, what made you choose to, to have a place in Findhorn? And oh, spend... it's just family connection, yeah. It's, right. not, it's not connection with the actual foundation itself. So are you in the village? To your village, yeah, yes. Right. But it's a tremendous thing to be near. And, yeah. that, and actually, strangely, I'd seen uh, My Dinner with Andre. It's one of my favourite movies, and I remember that bit. And also my older sister's a hippie, and I and read every book in her house and looked on a sort of shelf full of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and all that sort of stuff, and... There was a book called The Magic of Findhorn with a huge cabbage on the front. I know the book well, yeah. Right, so, you know, so I'd actually got these, it is already in my, in my consciousness, so so when it ended up living there part-time, it was quite amazing, and it is a beautiful place to live nearby, and in fact, I'm a director at Universal Hall, you know, so I'm, I'm, right. I'm involved with them to an extent. Never been a fan of tie-dye, so I'm not, you know. <laughs> Me neither, me neither. It's, yeah, those, there's certain certain aesthetic things that never seem never to work. One of my favourite little stories in uh, in The Magic of Findhorn is when... when Dorothy, I think, encounters the Davers for the first mm. time, and they and they're quite disparaging, aren't they, of humanity and all all the destruction Can that we're, we're doing to the to the planet. And and one of them says to 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 her, you know, what are these um, what are these strange things that you wear on your bodies? You know, the, the, this material. Why do you hang material on your bodies? At what point did their understanding of you know humanity start and end? They just built. An extra bit to the eco village, you know. It's not like the old days where you can just kind of yeah, start yeah. building your your own home. Um, and when they applied for planning permission to Murray Council, that's the local authority, uh, and then that gives the people the opportunity to object. And people always object for the same things, you know, usually. But in Findorn's case, there were a few objections on the basis that it would interrupt the Davers. Right now, Murray Council, who you know, it's a typical Scottish council didn't regard that as a valid objection. Nevertheless, it was, you know, that was in there still. So it's still a deeply held, you know, thing. And, and of course, what it means is, is that there is a, there's a great respect for the land. And when they build stuff, they build it in a kind of rather beautiful way, you know. So you can think, well, is it batty? Is it nuts? Is it kind of deluded? Maybe. But maybe at the same time, what's the, what's the consequence of it? Well, this beautiful place. So. And, and if it was Australia, we would we would have um, we'd be a lot more respectful, wouldn't we? In, right, term, in yeah, terms yeah, of Aboriginal the, lands and stuff yeah, like that, yeah. And the so, reasons for, yeah. for so, wanting to protect right, the spirits of right. the land, it's uh, yeah, yeah. David, thanks very much for going to the Bureau of Osculture. It's been wonderful. It's been really nice chatting with you, Stephen. Thanks to David very much. What a great story, or what a great set of stories. You can read much more about them in his book, The Number Nine Buster Utopia, and in the series of shows and films he's made about them. Links to that and them in the show notes, and to all his other wonderful, curious work. As I said, it's interesting being up in Scotland at Fintorn, uh, part of the time, on the edge of an alternative community, as I am, and observing some of the things that go on, nearly all good, some, frankly, quite odd, but I'm very glad it's there, and I hope it continues to survive and thrive. We need these places, as we said, you know, in what can often seem to be an increasingly crass, commercial, fractured world. It's great that some people are living the alternative. I'm hoping to invite somebody who is actually living the alternative in a community to come and talk about it in the future. If that's you, 
or you know somebody, write to us. We'd love to hear from you. We didn't, of course, get time really to talk about the idea of the online community. And uh, what do you think about that? I mean, um, sure, you know, they are a lot more ephemeral and perhaps they lack the down and dirty skin in the game challenges and benefits of face-to-face interaction and living, but it seems to me they can provide an amazing, valuable way to connect with like-minded folk without the limitations of geography, economy and politics. I hope that we, you, me, guests like David, are organically forming a kind of virtual countercultural community. We've got some plans as how we can develop that, so do stay posted bureauoflostculture.com thanks for joining us. We've all only got a certain amount of time in this life, so I really appreciate you spending some of yours here. See you down the road for more stories from the other side, from the underground, from the upside down. Here, to finish, is a song from the new troubadours of the Findhorn Foundation back in the early 70s, singing Rainbows in the sun. Salut. Together we were thought of, together we belong. Together we will change the world, together we are strong. There are all kinds of people all over the world coming together. We've been separate so long, but now we are.